Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. MacArthur Genius Fellow and Jazz Star Saxophonist Miguel Zanon is playing at the Rialto Center for the Arts on April 22nd. Several of his albums celebrate folkloric traditions of Zanon's native Puerto Rico. Ahead of his upcoming performance with the Georgia State University Jazz Band, we'll speak with Miguel Zanon about his ongoing project Caravana Cultura, which brings world-class jazz musicians to perform free concert in rural areas of Puerto Rico, and the importance of working with students such as those in the GSU Jazz Band. First, in her 2018 young adult book, Amal Unbound, Aisha Saeed wrote a beautiful novel inspired by the real-life story of Malala Yousafzai, the heroic Pakistani activist for female education. Saeed's new novel, Omar Rising, is another story of hope, also set in Pakistan. The author joins us now via Zoom. Aisha Saeed, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and to talk to you again. Well, this book was fantastic. And this time you have a male protagonist, a young teenager named Omar Ali. What can you tell us about him? Yeah, so Omar is the son of a servant. They live in the same village in Pakistan as it was the case in Amal's story. And in Amal Unbound, we know that he is living in this shed behind Amal's home. They don't have running water. They don't have electricity. And he just got accepted to a prestigious boarding school. And it's on scholarship. And that has the opportunity to change his entire destiny. And so that's where we leave off in Amal Unbound. And in Omar Rising, we see that journey to this boarding school and what it's like to be a kid on scholarship and the struggles that a child in that situation can have and how over time 
he begins to start feeling like a second class citizen. And so the book explores that as well as the power of collective activism to change unjust systems. Yes. In fact, the tagline for Omar Rising is, when the system is broken, you have to rise up. Yes. Omar is a very sweet boy. He wants to buy his mother a home. He loves astronomy and wants to study astronomy and become a great astronomer and discover more planets. He also is a great soccer player, and Amal is his best friend. So this is the same Amal whom we know from Amal Unbound, correct? Yes, yes. All right. She's super smart. She loves books and school. And while Amal's was a compelling story about the importance of female education in Pakistan, with Omar's story, we really see the injustice of class discrimination. Omar says he always knew he was poor, but it wasn't until he arrived at Ghalib Academy that he felt poor. Why did you want to examine the class system in Omar Rising? You know, I really started off just wanting to see what happened for Omar, and I felt there was no way around it that when a child is going to a school where everybody else has so much more than he does, that there are going to be differences, no matter how well-meaning the other children may be. And so I wanted to explore that. I know that even though the story takes place in Pakistan, even in the United States, there's kids that go to college on scholarship. They go to high schools at private schools on scholarship. And it's a different experience. You know, having the same experience doesn't always mean that it's an equitable situation. And so I wanted to just explore how this one boy is going to a school alongside so many other children. But even then, even taking those same classes, things are different. And a lot of times I feel like people can can lose sight of that, like, well, they're at the same school, but just because you're at the same school or in the same situation, your situations are always different because class is always an invisible thing that is there. And in fact, you engage in some nice wordplay when Omar reflects, we might be in the same classes, but we're from different classes. <laughs> yes, exactly. How does Omar's experience at Ghalib Academy illustrate the class discrimination in elite education? It's, it's not all from the students. Yeah, I think another part of this story, right, is it's not just students who look at him differently or treat him differently. It's also how the school's rules are. Um, so in Omar Rising, he is not allowed to, as a scholarship student, participate in the same activities as the other kids, um, extracurricular activities, because they think he needs more time to study. And they are also providing scholarship kids with a separate classes for English because they need more instruction. And worst of all for him, he also has to do chores, which other kids don't have to do. And they say it's a way to repay in some way the fact that they're at the school 
for free. And it was really interesting to write it because on the face, these rules to the adults and the people who put them in place, they're doing them to ostensibly help these children. You do need more time to study and we want you to be mindful of this gift you have while you're here and we'll give you some extra education. But the way that it's coming across is belittling. And so it's a little bit about how our intentions don't always equal the impact that what we're intending has on the intended population. Mm. You mentioned that this is not exclusive to Pakistan, to your examination of the class system in an elite boarding school. It wasn't an exact parallel, but I thought back on reading Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming. Oh, yes, yes. And when she wrote about arriving at Princeton and the girl who was supposed to be her roommate ended up going to a different room because that girl's mother just didn't think it was right to have her daughter sharing a room with a scholarship student and a black student at that. And I was just aghast when I read that. I mean, the Obamas are not that old. Right. And yet right. I guess some things just don't go away. I would like to think that when she became a powerful lawyer and activist and first lady that that mother really regretted her decision. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting because in a mall inbound, many students that reached out to me after reading would say, I thought this was historical fiction until I saw that there was a laptop and there was a smartphone. And similarly with Omer Rising, you know, people think, oh, this, this sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. Kids aren't looked at or scrutinized differently because they're on a scholarship. But these things are very present. Like you said, the Obamas are not that old. This wasn't that long ago that she faced that kind of prejudice. In terms of chores, I also read a biography of Dick Cavett many years ago, and he is, what, he's in his 80s now, I guess, but he was on scholarship at Yale, and he worked in the cafeteria. He had to bus tables, and I remember him writing that it would never have occurred to him to spit into anyone's food but the thought crossed his mind. <laughs> wow. Fortunately, he didn't. But, you know, just just that level of humiliation that good students who deserve a good education are made to feel because of class differences, it's astonishing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in, in this story, there are kids that are not particularly kind to him. But I I was more interested because I think we expect that. But I was also really interested to explore the kids who are not outwardly mean or cruel intentionally, but but still say things that, you know, they might complain like, oh, my father, when he went here, he did this. So I have to do this. Whereas he doesn't have a father, Omar, and he has nobody to guide him or tell him what to take or how to maneuver through this system. And so it's not always just 
the chores or these other things that make you feel set apart. It's even even words that people don't intend that are there to make you feel that difference. Yeah, like I said, Marwan, who goes skiing in the Alps and his parents have a beach home in Indonesia. <laughs> and Omar thinks, how many homes can one person have? <laughs> right, exactly. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is the author Aisha Saeed. Her new young adult novel, Omar Rising, is a compelling companion to her New York Times bestseller, Amal Unbound. Chapter 14 marks a turning point. We learned that the art teacher, Mr. Adil, is Omar's favorite. And on the soccer field, Omar says, I know where I belong. Soccer is home. You just need a ball. It's as simple as that. He is a gifted athlete. What unfolds when other students, as well as the coach, observe Omar on the soccer field? So I feel like on that soccer field, he feels completely equal to everybody else there. It's something that I saw myself when I would visit Pakistan, like kids playing soccer. You don't need to have an official net. You don't need to have an official certain type of, uh, you know, you just need a soccer ball. And I saw that when I was doing study abroad in Brazil, I was in Rio de Janeiro. And I remember from the airport, the drive to my apartment and just looking out and there were so many soccer fields everywhere, informal in ones and, and some in better neighborhoods that were much more, you know, much fancier and had a lot more equipment. But either way, the children were playing soccer. And so I really thought about that as I was writing this story. And that was why Omar loves soccer, because it's an equalizing sport for him. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter where you came from. You you can either play this soccer game or you can't. And so that was, that was important. On that field, nobody can judge him. And in fact, it raises his esteem among other students. And the coach eyes his talent. But the scholarship students can't join clubs. Is this another form of discrimination? That that was something that I wanted to explore because to Omer and to his friends and to the coach, it, it does feel like discrimination. And it is because he is being treated differently. And yet as the story progresses, we learn that the school thinks that they are doing this so that the children who need the most support and who need to study the most, because they do have a lot more to catch up on, they want to make sure they don't get distracted and that they don't fail out. And so again, intent is not always the same as impact. And so while they perhaps didn't see it as discrimination, they saw it as assistance, it, it was separating them and depriving them of the small joys that they could have being part of groups, making closer friendships and doing things that they loved. In art class, Omar connects with work by a local artist, Shazel Malik, 
Why does her artwork immediately resonate with Omar? So Shazal Malik is an actual artist in Lahore, Pakistan, and she's the artist behind the cover for Omar Rising and Amal Unbound, and that's how I found her work and fell in love with her work. She's done so many amazing things. She's an artist and she's an activist for women's rights. So in this story, Omar has to do an art project and he's never taken art classes before. He's feeling very insecure. He sees lots of great artists, but nothing's really connecting. But when he sees this particular piece of art, it's a Pakistani girl in Shalwar Kameez on a bicycle and there's people looking at her. It's a real, it's a real art piece that Shazel has created. And he's very moved by it because he sees himself in that. He can relate to that photo. And when he finds out that this artist is not from a million years ago, she, she's here now, and she lives so close to where his school is, he feels further seen. And it gives him a little bit more confidence that maybe he can do this because now he sees that there are people that look like him that can do this. And just reflecting on the power of feeling seen. Author Aisha Saeed will return with more of our discussion about her new novel, Omar Rising, in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Let's return to my conversation with the author Aisha Saeed. Her new young adult novel, Omar Rising, tells the story of Omar, a student who must contend with being treated like a second-class citizen, while on scholarship at an elite boarding school in Pakistan. Omar learns life lessons with his work in the kitchen. Please tell us about Chef Shweb. <laughs> he has the opportunity to do all sorts of different chores, but he grows close with the two cooks in the back kitchen and helps them with chopping up things for breakfast, prepping things. And as time goes on, he isn't just there because he has to do chores. He's there because he cares about these cooks and he, and it's a safe space for him and the other scholarship kids. It's a place away from any judgment uh, to be back there in the kitchen. And he learns as he's there that this chef used to be a celebrity chef of sorts. He worked in Karachi, pretty far away from where the story takes place. And he was known, he had posed with celebrities in Pakistan. And 
he left all that behind to come back to his village where his family was because he wasn't able to take his family with him to that life. And he works here now so he can have time with his family and, and have a quieter life, but a life that felt more fulfilling. And it was a chance for Omar to see that, sure, we can have these big, big dreams for ourselves, but there are also other ways that we can have a joyful, meaningful, fulfilling life as well. Chef Schweb has wonderful values, and it's a revelation for Omar and the other boys to learn that. What is Aiden's role in this story? We, oh, when we meet him, he is a nasty bully, and then he undergoes a transformation. Yes, he does. He does. He he starts off having a temper tantrum because this wasn't the school he wanted to be at. There was a much more prestigious school that he had hoped for. And so this was second best. And he just doesn't want to talk to anybody. And, you know, as the story goes on, we learn more about him and his background and why he is so distant and aloof. And it was interesting because I know I, I feel that I feel that there is always another side to children and and what makes them hurt other people, what what's hurting them. And so as I used to be a teacher, I actually taught in DeKalb County here in Atlanta. And so it was something I experienced a lot as an educator, and I wanted to bring that into the story. The headmaster, Mr. Moyes, seems unusually harsh. Would you explain what transpires between Omar and Mr. Moyes? So Mr. Moyes is the headmaster of this school, and he has decided that he is going to teach the scholarship kids in the first year their English because that's where that's the subject that they struggle in the most. And he comes across really mean to them. He's he's always frowning, it seems. He's always pushing them. He gives them more work. And they start to feel like he's out to get them. And he was inspired by my sixth grade teacher in Florida, where I grew up. And I, my sixth grade teacher was always pushing me. She was always on my case. And I felt like she was out to get me. And I always felt like when she was pulling me aside to give me extra lessons, it was, it was some sort of punishment. And it wasn't until the year went on and towards the end of the school year that I saw that she just wanted she saw something in me. She saw something in my writing and she had wanted to nurture it and grow it. And she was also protecting me because I did have bullies growing up. And so she was pulling me into her class to, to keep me safe as well. And so, you know, as an adult now, I see all of it so different. And as a child, I saw it so different. And that's where Moise came from, was from the adults and kids' life who sometimes don't realize that there's more going on than they may re- that they may see initially. Hmm. The narrative emphasizes the enormous pressure and anxiety that Omar and the other scholarship boys feel. Aisha, did you base their experience on knowledge of what goes on in an elite Pakistani school? Is Ghalib modeled after a certain school? Ghalib is completely fictional. I did look into schools that are boarding schools in Pakistan, like Etchison is a really prestigious one. It's the one that the bully actually wanted to go to. But that 
particular pressure, it's, it's inspired by the inherent pressure that I've seen in my own family and in the students that I've worked with about wanting to please people, feeling like you will be the first in your family, let's say, to go to college. You're going to be the first in your family to accomplish a certain milestone that nobody else has. And the pressure that comes with that and the responsibility that comes with that and that that feeling that you don't want to let anybody down and you don't want to let anybody know that you're scared because you know how many people are counting on you. And so I've seen the effects of that with relatives that I've, I have and, you know, and I've seen the effect with students. And so I had wanted to capture that in this story about what it's like to feel that you cannot tell anybody what you're going through and you have to be strong even when you're not feeling quite so strong. So I mentioned that Omar's favorite teacher is Mr. Adil, who does a wonderful job of guiding his students through art, a subject, and a world that didn't appeal or necessarily seem accessible to these boys before his class. Will you describe Omar's art project? So Omar, in this story, he wants to be an astronomer, like you said, and he considers himself a science kid. And I, I've encountered that a lot growing up. Kids who say, oh, I'm an art person. I'm not a math person, or I'm not a science person, or I'm a science person. I'm not an art person. And it doesn't have to be a binary. You know, you can be both. And so that's part of Omar's journey in this story is to see that he's he's more than one thing. He's not just a kid who likes science. He can also be a kid who likes art and can be good at art. And his final project is inspired by an article that Shazo Malik was interviewed in. It's a real article. And she talks about the importance of being stubbornly optimistic and never giving up. And so he combines his love of science and this art project because he loves outer space. And so he chooses Pluto, who's been, as we all know, kicked out of the solar system, <laughs> which is a source of much strife in my household. Oh, <laughs> Pluto so, marked down. <laughs> exactly. And so he feels that way. He feels a bit marked down. He feels like he's in this solar system with these other kids at this school. And yet he is by so many not considered to be like them. And so he uses that as a symbol of himself trying to be stubbornly optimistic and hanging in there at the school, just like Pluto's hanging in, orbiting orbiting the sun, even though they say he's not a planet anymore. Um, just like that, he sees himself as trying to hang in there and not give up, even though people are labeling him otherwise. You mentioned astronomy in your household. Please elaborate. <laughs> We we just got really into during, especially during the pandemic, into Neil deGrasse Tyson and watching uh, the cosmos and just lots and lots of deep dives into that. And personally, as a kid, I grew up with Pluto as a ninth planet. And so and so the kids and I, we've just we've just had so many debates about it. There's actually a really funny YouTube video called We Don't Talk About Pluto, which is a, <laughs> <laughs> which is a take on We Don't Talk About Bruno, yeah. which we have watched many, many times, and I think that Omar would have loved that one. <laughs> oh, so is Neil deGrasse Tyson singing like Lin-Manuel Miranda and We Don't Talk About Pluto? No, 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 it's uh, it's not, but but he is mentioned in it because he is one of the people who think that Pluto should not be a planet, so. And, and to be clear, I see the rationale for Pluto not to be a planet, but on an emotional level, I have a hard time accepting that. <laughs> <laughs> I was intrigued by the number 
of astronomy references you make. I mean, just words for how Omar perceives things. Were you having fun with that? I was, yeah. I, you know, I, I loved seeing things through his point of view. And, you know, I feel like to make a character feel very real and lived in, they have to have specificity to them. And so Omar and his love for the solar system and planets and this dream that he has of becoming an astronomer is what's motivating him and guiding him through trying to keep at it at this school. And so he does see the world and is inspired by his challenges by thinking about that. And and that was really fun for me. And I myself, through working on this story, learned so much about that topic that I didn't know before I began working on this story. Oh, great. Dramatic tension builds toward the end of this story. In fact, a crisis, and it's very suspenseful. In the end, there is a dramatic show of support for the scholarship students. Yes. Aisha, what has Omar learned from Shazel Malik's stubborn optimism? <laughs> I, I'd like to think that what he's learned is that being stubbornly optimistic means that you continue to hope even when things feel hopeless and that that hope doesn't have to rest on your shoulders alone. You can lean on people. So much magic happens for Omer. So much changes when he starts to tell people the secrets that he's kept about how scared he is and about the stakes and how easy it is for him to get kicked out of the school. Once he starts doing that, the hope continues to grow and grow and build and build. I feel like that is a theme in a lot of my stories, so I don't intentionally set out for it. When I look back at the stories I tell, I do really emphasize the importance of that, of leaning on other people and how one person may not change something, but if we can collectively work towards that same cause, we really, really have a stronger chance. Author Aisha Saeed. More information about her new young adult novel, Omar Rising, is on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, Grammy-nominated jazz alto saxophonist Miguel Zanon. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. MacArthur Genius Fellow and jazz star Miguel Zanon is performing at the Rialto Center for the Arts on Friday, April 22nd. The Grammy-nominated jazz alto saxophonist will perform with the Georgia State University Jazz Band as part of the Rialto series Season of Mastery. Before he hits the stage, Miguel Zanon joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to share this time with all of you, and I want to say hello to everyone who's listening. Your birthplace, Puerto Rico, is important to the music you make. Would you tell us about 
growing up in San Juan and how that influenced your music? Of course. Yeah, like you mentioned, I grew up in San Juan, Puerto Rico. I, I lived there pretty much until I was 19 years old and, and ended up moving to the United States to go to college. Obviously, my upbringing there was, was uh, very important and, and, and had a, a great effect in my personality and the way I envisioned life and music. Uh, oddly enough, it, it did take me a, a while to start thinking about ways that I could use some of that information that I was exposed to as a, as a young person in Puerto Rico. Um, you know, I moved to the States and went to college and studied jazz. And, and, and eventually I started asking myself questions, sort of pondering what my personality would be like in this environment as a, you know, jazz musician from Latin America trying to sort of like find myself within all these different worlds. And that's sort of when I started kind of tracing back my steps and became really interested in, in studying and researching more about the history of my country, the history of Latin America in general, actually, and seeing how that could inform in regards with my music. And ever since then, it's just sort of become my, a, a pretty natural and pretty sort of like essential part of my process. Sort of like this idea of having the perspective of being far away and being uh, not in your homeland, but connected to your homeland through music and culture is something that, that became really integral to me. Yeah. When did your interest in jazz begin? Well, I went to a performing arts music school in Puerto Rico uh, from age 11 to age uh, 17. That's where I started playing the saxophone and sort of learning music formally. But it wasn't until I was probably about 15 that I discovered jazz through friends and people who were kind of passing around tapes. Back then it was tapes. And, uh, and, uh, <laughs> it's and not I, so long ago. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, and I discovered, you know, some of the musicians who are now my heroes, people like Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, Duke Ellington, John Coltrane. And, and I, I, I sort of became enamored with the idea of being able to express yourself through improvisation using your instrument and specifically using this language you know improvisation is not necessarily exclusive of jazz you can find improvisation in a lot of different styles of music including a lot of music from puerto rico there was a combination between intellect and something that felt really heartfelt in jazz that just came, it just really it just really drew my attention and i just sort of became uh, really passionate and really kind of obsessed with trying to understand uh, uh, what it what it was, and and, I'm, and I still am actually. <laughs> you mentioned some of the jazz legends. How did alto saxophone become your instrument? Were there specific players that inspired you? Well, when I went to this performing arts school in, in Puerto Rico, the alto I kind of got to the alto by sort of by chance. You know, it was the, when I got there the first day. There were a couple instruments to choose from, and. There was, I think there was like an oboe and maybe guitar and something else. And the alto just kind of seemed like, like the one that I was most familiar with just from listening to popular music and that kind of thing, you know. Uh, but then eventually, like I said, the person that really made a, a big impact on me as a musician was Charlie Parker, you know, hearing, ah. him, hearing him play that instrument so well and being able to express himself through the instrument, it really opened the door for me in music that didn't really exist before. I mean, I, I, I liked music before that, but I wasn't necessarily passionate about it until I discovered musicians like him and, 
and and I just you know since then it kind of became my tool of expression, my instrumental voice. Wow, Charlie Parker helped you discover your alto saxophone voice. Yes. Miguel, several of your albums celebrate folkloric music traditions of Puerto Rico. Let's talk about one in particular. How would you describe plena? Wow. Um, so plena is a, is a genre uh, from Puerto Rico, a musical genre from Puerto Rico that was born uh, or, or is sort of documented uh, for the first time in the early 1900s. Uh, uh, historically, is sort of placed in the south and southwest of Puerto Rico, so in the towns of Ponce, Mayagüez, in that area. It's very percussive, of course, uh, uh, like very African in nature, but it also has this this vocal element that's really present, like a lot of, like a lot of that music we find here in the Americas that has a mix of African elements and European and a lot of these things. Y esta melodía do la combinación. Esta plena me alegra el corazón. Esta plena me brinda satisfacción. Con el requinto y el seguidor. Y esta melodía do la combinación. De Borinquen te la caigo yo. Y la canto hasta el Nueva York. Con el requinto y el seguidor. Y esta melodía do la combinación. And Puerto Rico had developed and evolved pretty rapidly, eventually finding itself its way into the capital, San Juan, uh, and evolving into what Plena is today. It could be described in many ways. I think one of the ways that I like to describe it is that it's sort of like the musical voice of the Puerto Rican working class. Uh, it's music that's really mobile. It's played with these banderos, this handheld drums, scopan which you can kind of carry with you, you know, anywhere. It's sort of like a carnival music in that sense, you know, it's very mobile, you can go from place to place playing and singing. It's easy to identify, easy to to play, really. I mean, not, I mean, nothing is easy to play, but you can kind of like, kind of keep a rhythm pretty easily. You know, one of the things that really caught my attention about Plena, not only in terms of the music and how great the music is, but it's really embedded in Puerto Rican everyday culture, you know. So one of the examples that I like to use is uh, like, you know, for example, if you go to a birthday party and someone sings happy birthday, uh, it's usually going to be sang to a plenum rhythm. Uh, and, and kind of unconsciously people do that, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that's really embedded in the culture and embedded in that. So I became really interested in this idea of plena as a, as a cultural manifestation and eventually explored it and, and, and you know, uh, documented it on a project called Esta Plena, which I believe is the one that you're referring to. Yes, and I was hoping you could recommend some musical example from your album, Hibaro. Yes, of course. So uh, Esta Plena is one of the, the albums. Hibaro is another album that explores another genre of music from Puerto Rico. It's uh, rural music from the mountains, and it's called Hibaro Music, Musica Hibara.
I, I could give you a lot of different uh, examples, but one thing about Musica Hibara that's that's really particular is that it's really vast. It's probably the largest and richest manifest cultural manifestations in Puerto Rico. Uh, it has many genres and many subgenres. And my process into getting into that project was very similar to Esta Plena, just exploring the history and researching and interviewing musicians and and kind of getting into into a place where I could kind of turn it into something that that represented what I was trying to do. Um, some of the artists that were really influential for me doing that were people like Chuito de Bayamón, uh, Ramito, La Calandria. Uh, and if I was gonna to if I was going to like maybe pinpoint one track out of that project, it might be uh, the title track Hibaro, which sort of represents the the epicenter of the history of that music in terms of where it comes from. It comes, it's based on this thing called Aguinaldo Jíbaro, which is the, one of the oldest song forms documented in Puerto Rico. a deep dive into research, it's not difficult to understand why the MacArthur Foundation chose you to become a fellow. In fact, Miguel, you've been involved in bringing music to and from Puerto Rico for several years now. I read about Caravana Cultura, Yes. The program you started in 2011 yes. to bring world-class jazz musicians to give free concerts in rural areas of Puerto Rico. Would you tell us more about why you wanted to create this program? Yeah, of course. So Caravana Cultural is, a, is like you mentioned, is a program that focuses on presenting free of charge jazz concerts in the rural areas of Puerto Rico, specifically in these areas, because these are the areas that get the least amount of cultural activity. That is a new cultural activity, you know. Uh, so most of the places that we take these concerts to, jazz is very new or unknown in those places. Like a jazz concert is sort of unheard of in a place, in, in some of those um, towns that we visit. And the idea was really to use jazz and just use the idea of of culture and sort of cement the belief that culture and cultural accessibility is something that's sort of integral to any society and it should be accessible to everyone. Uh, I feel like a lot of times uh, us as, as artists and musicians, we have the opportunity to, to present our music, but it's not always that that music is accessible to us, to, to everyone for many reasons, be it a ticket price or accessibility to get to a place or another. So in this case, the idea was to put together these concerts and, and bring them directly to the communities. You know, we started doing it, like you mentioned, in 2011. We've had 12 concerts so far. Uh, we had a little, we had to make a little stop after Puerto Rico was uh, devastated by a hurricane a few years ago. And then, of course, because of the pandemic, but we're planning to get back to it this year. 
like you mentioned, the idea is to put together this concert, but there's more to it. Uh, we have, you know, educational uh, activity kind of connected to the concert. We have a pre-concert talk where we talk about improvisation, talk about the history of jazz, the history of, of various musicians, people like Miles Davis and John Coltrane, the musicians who we honored on, the, on, on these concerts. And also, and this is sort of an integral part of the project, we like to involve people in the community by inviting young musicians from, from the community to perform with us. And these musicians are trained by a local instructor who is in, in part also in connection with us and, and, and sort of guided by us for the project. Uh, and this is sort of a way of connecting with the community. So it's not just us coming from outside and bringing music in, but sort of putting something together that's, that involves both parties. And in recent concerts, we, we, we started basically choosing one of these young musicians and granting a small grant so they could purchase instruments and take uh, musical classes, those kinds of things. So it's an, it's an ongoing process, but I'm very proud of it. And, and it's, it's been really fulfilling to get the opportunity just to give back. Wonderful. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with Miguel Zanon the Grammy-nominated jazz alto saxophonist, will perform with the Georgia State University Jazz Band on Friday, April 22nd. What can you tell us about your collaboration with the GSU Jazz Band? Well, this is something that's been in the works for a little while now. This visit, we've tried it a couple times in the past, and it never really worked out just because of conflicts with the dates and et cetera, et cetera. So I'm actually really excited that we were eventually uh, able to put this together. As part of the concert at, at the Rialto Theater, I'm also doing a, a residency at, at Georgia State and working with the students there. They're a very talented group. Uh, they, you know, they've put a lot of hard work in the music and, you know, any, these opportunities for me, uh, I really cherish them because it, I, I love to go out and, and meet younger musicians, interact with them share experiences and get to learn from them also and learn from their experiences. So the whole thing is always really great. You know, I'm, I'm sure they're, they're looking forward to the concert as, more as, as, as much as I am. Well, it, this points to something else I wanted to mention that speaks beautifully for your commitment to the role of educator. You hold a permanent position at the New England Conservatory and Manhattan School of Music. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And you are artist in residence at Columbia University. You mentioned your excitement at being in Atlanta and working with the GSU students with their jazz ensemble. Why is the role of educator so meaningful to you, Miguel? Well, you know, it's something that's that's grown into me uh, with time. To be honest, uh, when I was kind of going through the process of, of working on music, I, I never thought that this was a, a call that, that would eventually be there for me. But I think, you know, going through the process myself as a young musician, and having so many people, I mean, I could just give you a long list of people that went out of their way to help me and guide me and, you know, take time 
to point me in the right direction, as you would say. That's the kind of thing that it just feels to me like it's sort of my responsibility to do that myself, you know, with musicians who now find themselves in the position that I was going to school as a young music student. And to be honest, you know, I mentioned this thing about, you know, learning from the students, which might sound like a cliche, but it's really not. There are certain things about being a musician, especially playing jazz music and music that, that involves a lot of creativity. Um, you gather a lot of information over the years, but a lot of the learning is sort of done, is, is sort of done on your own, you know, like inside your own sort of process. And when I find myself having to explain that process to someone else, in many ways, I learned that I, I sort of learned that process better and I gain a deeper understanding of what it is that I'm trying to put together by having to teach it to somewhere else or to someone else. So, uh, you know, I guess you could say that by teaching others, you know, I'm kind of learning the information myself in an even deeper way. Mm. Do you have any idea the repertoire that will be on the April 22nd concert? Any idea what songs you and the JSU Jazz Band will play? Yeah, of course. So we're going to be playing a, a sort of like a mix of different things from my repertoire. I know they've been working on, on a couple of charts, and this is this is a large ensemble uh, group. So we're, we're, some of the things from my repertoire have been adapted to a large ensemble, sort of a big band format. So some things from the Planner Project, some things from other projects that I've done with my quartet, uh, some things that are specifically written for big band. I believe there's one piece that they're working on uh, that's called En Pie de Lucha. That's, that's kind of a hard translation, but it means like up for the challenge or up for the fight. I guess you could translate it that way. And that's a piece that I wrote actually a few years ago, uh, thinking about Puerto Rico going through this uh, immense uh, uh, you know, tragedy after it was devastated by these two hurricanes and thinking about how people just kind of got up you know, and, and get up to fight, you know, and to fight for, for, for their country and fight for, you know, having a community and, and, and getting together. And it was, that was really inspiring to me. So I wrote this piece, which I've never recorded, but I've gotten to play a couple of times. Uh, and I think we're going to play that in Atlanta. So I'm really excited about that one. Great. Atlanta's home to another Puerto Rican jazz saxophonist, yes. as it happens, David Sanchez. Yes. You've, you've worked together before, is that correct? Yes, of course. Uh, David is one of my mentors, uh, one of my closest friends. I met David when I was still in college. I was 19, 20, through a common friend. And ever since then, we've been really, really close. I've played in his band for many years. As a matter of fact, it was one of my first professional experiences as a, as a jazz musician, getting to travel the world with his band and recording uh, albums with them. So, yes, uh, David and I uh, have a long history. And, um, you know, one of the, one, another reason that I'm very excited to, to visit Atlanta is to get to spend some time with him. So. A legend himself. Yes, of course, yeah. Miguel Zanon, Grammy-nominated jazz alto saxophonist. He's performing at the Rialto Center for the Arts with the Georgia State University Jazz Band on April 22nd. More information is on our website, wabe.org. 
You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll celebrate World Art Day and discuss two exciting exhibitions on view in our city, Full Circle at the Museum of Design Atlanta and Andre Kertes, Postcards from Paris at the High Museum of Art. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.